Section 14 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Elmer Harvard. Chapter 14. Peter Cooper. Part 2. Commerce was drifting away from Baltimore to Philadelphia and New York. The Erie Canal had been opened and it looked as if this would be the one route to the west, the Hudson River to Albany, thence the Bicanal to Buffalo, and on by the Great Lakes to the land of promise. Pennsylvania had a system of canals partially in use and the rest in building, which would open up a route to the Ohio River at Pittsburgh. But engineers had looked the ground over, and given it as their opinion that Baltimore was hedged in by insurmountable difficulties. Prophecies were made that soon ships would cease to come to Baltimore at all. And under this lowering commercial sky, Peter Cooper saw his Baltimore investments fading away into the ether. At this time, the Manchester and Liverpool Railroad was in operation. The coaches and wagons were simply those in use on the roads, but with new tires they carried a flange to keep the wheel on the rail. It was found that a team of horses could draw double the load on a railroad that they could if the wheels on the vehicle were on the ground. The news was brought to America. Wooden rails were first tried, and then these were strengthened by nailing strap iron along the top. It was a great idea. Build a railroad from Baltimore to the Ohio River, and thus compete with the Pennsylvania canals to the Ohio. In 1827, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company was formed. It was the first railroad company in America. Peter Cooper bought shares to the extent of his ability. It was a life-and-death struggle. If the railroad was a success, Baltimore was saved, and Peter Cooper was a rich man. Otherwise, he was bankrupt. Stephenson's rocket in England was pulling three or four carriages at a speed of 10 miles an hour, while a team of horses on the same track could pull only one carriage at a rate of 6 or 7 miles an hour. The city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland were empowered to buy shares in the new transportation company. Thus, we find government ownership of the first American railroad. The major of the city and the governor of the state had heard of Peter Cooper's engine, which he said could be used for land carriages, and they now imported him to come to their rescue. Robert Fulton had already proved that the steamship was practicable, but Fulton wasn't interested in railroads. He maintained, as did almost everyone else, that the water route was the only safe and sure and economical way of transportation. When the railroad was built from Albany to Schenectady, the first idea was to have the engine tow canal boats. Peter Cooper heard the wail of the Baltimoreans and said, I'll knock an engine together in six weeks that will put carriages ten miles an hour and beat any canal boat that ever collected barnacles. Peter Cooper went back from Baltimore to New York with a few misgivings as to whether he had not promised too much. The real fact was he had gotten a patent on his engine before he had put it to an actual test. He had made the engine, but now he must make a boiler in which to generate the steam to make the wheels go round. This boiler he made and riveted with his own hands. It stood upright and was as high as his shoulder. It had a furnace beneath. It contained no tubes, and the proposition was to fill it half full of water and then boil this water. It took three weeks to make the boiler. It was about as big as the tank in an average kitchen range. There were no water gauges or steam gauges. The engineer had to guess as to the pressure he was carrying. 
When the boiler was complete, the great difficulty was how to carry the steam from the boiler to the engine. There were no wrought iron pipes then made or sold in America. Cooper took a couple of muskets and used the barrels for pipes to connect his boiler and engine. These were duly soldered into place. The engine and boiler were then placed on a small flat-top wagon and bolted down. The engine had a wheel which projected over the side, and an endless chain was run over the projecting hub of the wagon. Peter experimented and found that the water in the boiler would last one hour, then the fire would have to be drawn, and the boiler cooled and refilled. He tried the engine and it worked, but there was no railroad upon which to try the wagon until the machine was taken down in Baltimore. A team was hitched to the wagon, and the drive was made to Baltimore in three days. Peter placed his wagon with its flanged wheels on the track and pushed it up and down along the rail. It fitted the track all right. He then went back to his hotel with the two boys who were helping him. After the boys were abed, he sneaked off in the darkness, filled up his boiler, screwed down the top, and fired up. It was a moment of intense excitement. He turned on the steam. The wheels revolved. Then the thing stuck. He had a pike pole and using this pushed himself along for a few roads. The endless chain was working and the machine was going, flying, almost as fast as a man could run. And Peter ran the machine back into the barn, went home, and went to bed. He had succeeded. The next day, he invited the president of the road and the major of the city to ride with him. The machine had to be pulled or pushed to start it, but it proved the principle. The following day, a public exhibition was given. Forty men and one woman responded to the request for volunteers to ride. They rode on the engine and in a big coach attached behind. They covered the top of the coach and clung to the sides. A dozen men got hold and gave a good push and they were off. The road was just 13 miles long. The distance was made in one hour and 12 minutes. The fire was then drawn and the boiler refilled. Also, all the passengers refilled, for whiskey flowed free. Peter Cooper was ready to start back. He ordered every man to hold on to his hat. A push and a pull, all together, and they were off. They ran the 13 miles back in just 58 minutes. The engine was a success beyond the fondest hopes of Peter. There were difficulties in the way, however. One was that the pullings only on one side caused a cramping of the flange on the other side against the rail. This was remedied by putting a wheel on both sides and running a chain on the two projecting hubs. The pulling by hand to start was also criticized. Next, the fact that the engine had to be shut down every hour for water was noted. Peter Cooper stopped the mouths of the carpers by calling attention to the fact that even a horse had to be watered. And as for giving a push on starting, it was a passenger's duty to collaborate with the engineer. Besides that, passengers get thirsty and hungry as well as horses and want a little change. Peter Cooper assured the critics that the boiler could be refilled while a man was getting a drink and stretching his legs. The people who owned the stagecoach line that ran parallel with the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad made a lot of fun of Peter Cooper's tea kettle. On one occasion, they loosened the rail, so the thing ran into the ditch. For a time this sort of discouraged traffic, but there were others who prophesied that in a few years horses could not be given away. Finally, the owner of the stagecoach line challenged the railroad folks to race from Riley's Tavern to Baltimore, a distance of nine miles. The race was between a noted grey horse, famed for speed and endurance, and a tea kettle. The road ran right alongside of the wagon route. In truth, it took up a part of the roadway, 
which was one cause of opposition. The race occurred on September 18, 1830. Thousands of dollars were bet and a throng of people lined the route from start to finish. The engine pulled with one coach and had one passenger. The gray horse was hitched to a buggy that carried one man besides the driver. The engine led for five miles when the boiler sprang a leak and stopped, the engineer and his anxiety getting on too much pressure. The horse won and this proved to many people a fact which they had suspected and foretold, namely, that the steam engine for land carriages was only a plaything. Farmers in that vicinity took heart and began again to turn their attention to racing horses. In the year 1831, when Peter Cooper was 40 years old, he was worth $50,000. When he was 45, he was worth $100,000. When he was 50, he was worth more than $200,000. He was one of the richest men in New York, and he was a man of influence. Had he centered on money-making, he might have become the richest man in America. He held the political office that he might serve the people, not that he might serve a party or himself. In all deliberative parties, the actual work is done by a few. A dozen men, or less, run Congress. For forty years, Peter Cooper served the city of New York and the state, and always to his own financial loss. He saw the last remains of the Indian estocade removed from Manhattan Island. When he was elected alderman, the city was patrolled by night watchmen who made the rounds and cried the hour and all's well. For five hours, from midnight until five o'clock in the morning, they walked and watched. They were paid a dollar a night, and the money was collected from the people who owned the property on the streets they patrolled, just as in country towns they sprinkled the streets in front of the residences owned by the men who subscribed. Peter Cooper inaugurated a system of public safety, or police protection. He also replaced the old volunteer fire department with the paid service. He was the first man to protest against the use of wells as a water supply for a growing city. The first water pipes used in New York City were bored logs. He fought against these and finally induced the city to use iron pipes. As there was no iron pipe at this time made in America, he inaugurated a company to cast pipe. Very naturally, his motives in demanding iron pipes were assailed, but he stood his ground and made the pipes and sold them to the city rather than the city should not have them. He was brave enough to place himself in a suspicious position that the people might prosper. In 1830, he organized the Free School Society to fight the division of the school funds among sectarian schools. The idea that any form of religion should be thought at public expense was abhorrent to him. He was denounced as an infidel and an enemy of society, but his purity of life and unselfish devotion to what he knew was right were his shield and defense. The fight was kept up from 1830 to 1853, when it was fixed in statute that no fund raised by taxation should be provided or used for the support of any school in which any religious or sectarian doctrine or tenet is thought, inculcated, or practiced. The Free School Society was then fused with the school board and ceased to exist as a separate institution. That the amalgamation was a plan to shelve Peter Cooper's secular ideas dawned upon him later, and that the struggle for a school free from superstition's taint was not completely won, Peter Cooper fully realized. During this long service on the school board of New York City, Peter Cooper worked out in his own mind an ideal of education which he was unable to impress upon his fellow townsmen. No doubt their indifference and opposition tended to crystallize his own ideas. 
it will not do to say that peter cooper was exactly disgusted with the public school system of new york for he more than any other one man had evolved it and carried it forward from very meagre beginnings democracy is a safeguard against tyranny but it often cramps and hinders the man of genuine initiative if the entire public school system of the state had been delegated to peter cooper in eighteen hundred fifty he as sole commissioner could and would have set the world a pace in pedagogy the Israeli's contention that democracy means the rule of the worst has in it a basis of truth peter cooper's appeals to his colleagues on the school board fell on idle ears and so he decided to do the thing himself and the extent to which he would do it was to be limited only by his fortune cooper union was to be a model for every public school in america the block bounded by third and fourth avenues and the brewery was bought up by peter cooper a lot at a time with the idea of a model school in mind when peter cooper bought the first lot there in eighteen hundred thirty six the site was at the extreme north limit of the city later a t stewart was to build his business palace near at hand cooper offered his block of land to the city gratis provided a school would be built according to his plans his offer was smilingly pigeonholed in eighteen hundred fifty four when peter cooper was sixty one years old he began the building of his model school on his own account his business affairs had prospered and besides the glue factory he was making railroad iron at ringwood new jersey and bethlehem pennsylvania these mills were very crude according to our present-day standards but peter cooper believed the consumption of iron would increase bridges were then built almost entirely of wood peter cooper built his bridges of rolled iron boards as they were first called riveted together but he found it difficult to compete with the wooden structures when he began building cooper union he found himself with a big stock of bridge iron on hand for which there was no market the excavations were already made for the foundations when the idea came to peter cooper that he could utilize this bridge iron in his school building and thus get an absolutely fireproof structure the ability of peter cooper to adapt himself to new conditions turning failure into success is here well illustrated not until he had accumulated an overstock of bridge iron did he think of using iron for the frames of buildings it was the first structural use of iron to reinforce stone and brick in america cooper union was nearly five years in building a financial panic had set in and business was at a standstill but peter did not achieve his plan and the idea of abandoning it never occurred to him the land and the building cost him six hundred thirty thousand dollars and came near throwing him into bankruptcy but business revived and he pulled through to the loss of reputation of many good men who had persistently prophesied failure be it said to the credit of his family that the household too partook of the dream and lent their aid altogether the assets of cooper union are now about two million dollars the ideal man in the mind of peter cooper was benjamin franklin he wanted to help the apprentice the poor boy he saw many young men dissipating their energies at saloons and other unprofitable places if he could provide a place where these young men could find entertainment and opportunity to improve their minds it would be a great gain peter cooper thought that we are educated through the sense of curiosity quite as much as in reading books so cooper union provided a museum of works works and many strange natural history specimens there was also an art gallery a collection of maps and a statuary 
and a lecture hall was placed in the basement of the building. Peter Cooper had once seen a panic occur in a hall located on the second story, and the people fell over one another in a mass on the stairway. He said the panic was not likely to occur going upstairs. This hall is a beautiful and effective assembly room, even yet. It seats 1,900 people, and the audience so surrounds the speaker that it does not impress one as being the vast auditorium which it is. Cooper Union has always been the home of free speech. Next to the Faneuil Hall, it is the most distinguished auditorium in America from a historic standpoint. William Cullen Bryant, Edward Everett, Henry Ward Beecher, Wendell Phillips, and every great speaker of the time spoke here. Victoria Woodhull brought much scandal on the devoted head of Peter Cooper when he allowed her to use the platform to ventilate her peculiar views. Peter Cooper met the criticism by inviting her to come back and speak again. She did so, being introduced by Theodore Tilton. Here came Lincoln, the gaunt and homely, and spoke before he was elected president. His Cooper Union speech is a memorable document, although it was given without notes and afterwards written out by Lincoln, who seemed surprised that anyone should care to read it. The speech given in Cooper Union by Robert G. Ingersoll lifted him from the rank of a Western lawyer to national prominence in a single day. Other men had criticized the Christian religion, but no man of power on a public platform had up to that time in America expressed his abhorrence and contempt for it. The reputation of Ingersoll had preceded him. He had given his lecture in Peoria, then in Chicago, and now he made bold to ask Peter Cooper for permission to use the historic hall. Cooper responded with eagerness. There was talk of a mob when the papers announced an infidel speech. The auspicious night came, and Peter Cooper himself introduced the speaker. He sat on the platform during the address, at times applauding vigorously. It was an epoch, but then Peter Cooper was an epoch-making man. Cooper Union is now conducted along the identical lines laid out by its founder. It is a free university dedicated to the people. It has a yearly enrollment of over 3,500 pupils. Only three universities in America surpass it in numbers. Its courses are designed to cover the needs of practical, busy people. Art, architecture, engineering, business, and chemistry are its principal features. Its fine reading room and library have a yearly attendance of a million visitors. The Great Hall is used almost every night in the year, and just remember that this has continued for 50 years. When the building was put up, there were no passenger elevators in New York or elsewhere. Peter Cooper's mechanical mind saw that higher buildings would demand mechanical lifts, and so he provided a special elevator shaft. He saw his prophecy come true, and there is now an elevator in the place he provided. The demand now upon the building overtaxes its capacity. The influx of foreign populations in New York City makes the needs of Cooper Union even more imperative than they were 50 years ago. So additional buildings are now underway, and with increased funds from various worthy and noble people. Cooper Union is taking a new lease of life and usefulness. And into all the work there goes the unselfish devotion, the patience, and the untiring spirit of Peter Cooper, apprentice, mechanic, inventor, businessman, financier, philosopher, and friend of humanity. End of section 14